welcome to Tutorial Stories, LCF's object-based podcast in which I, Susanna Cordner, invite guests in who works in or with fashion and if they bring an item from their work or from their wardrobe and we use that as the basis of our conversation. Uh, today I'm joined by my colleague from the University of the Arts London, David, um, and I'm really happy to join with you. Thank you for joining us, David. Um, we're going to be talking about kind of David's professional practice and lens. From there we'll talk about his object choice and then we'll talk more about personal perspective. First of all, thank you and welcome. So within this series, as I said there, we try to have people with very different practices and perspectives. So perhaps first of all, you could talk about uh, your own practice and, and the way in which that might involve fashion, please. Um, I work as primarily as a, as a writer. Uh, my work here um, at UAL comes under the title, quite a fancy title, yeah. actually, <laughs> um, which is Reader in Museology. Uh, and what that means is that I have a university-wide responsibility for looking at the, the field of museology, the study of museums, mm -hmm. which incorporates exhibition practice, but curating as well, collecting, and all the things which follow from that. Yeah. Now, broad, because it's so broad, yeah. <laughs> then it does also obviously involve different forms of collections, mm -hmm. and although I don't specialise in garment collections and fashion or dress, um, historical dress, mm. I am aware of those yeah. collections and of the rich history we have of collecting in this country and some of our big institutions such as the BNA, but also in relation to the history of our own colleges, London College of Fashion of course and Central St Martins which obviously have amazing collections of, of those materials. Yeah. So that's how I've come across them in terms yeah. of my um, uh, professional uh, capacity um, but also because of the nature of our course which is collection studies is curating and collections mm. is collection studies as well as curatorial the curatorial side also involves working sometimes with fashion garments yeah. different kinds of garments so for instance yeah. uh, currently at the moment at Chelsea Space we have a show called Dress Portrait which is focusing on the work of Molly Goddard and Sarah Edwards. Mm -hmm. um, with a lot of focus on Molly Goddard's use of smocking and mm -hmm. the kinds of materials that, that she's, um, she's involved with. So working alongside colleagues at Chelsea Space like uh, Donald Smith and mm -hmm. um, Sherry, uh, Sherry Silva, Gaia Giacomelli, um, we understand the importance of being able to look at garments as visual objects mm -hmm. as much as they might be um, objects in relation to things like textile construction or such like. Um, so it falls into both, if you like, within the remit of both sides mm. of the work that we do, both in relation to curating, how one might think about displaying uh, garments, but also in relation to garment collections. Yeah. So my, um, I have an overview, if you like, of, of both of those things. Yeah, I love that idea, partly because it really embeds curatorial and collection-based practice and object-based learning in UAL's work and your own work, but also because it allows you to look at different strands of what you collect and why, and, and kind of how you described there with the Molly Goddard project, how you might use it. That's one of my favourite things, the dress objects, that yes, I can use it as an art piece, you can use it as kind of an instrumentation format, or you can use it to talk about the economy or relationships between genders. 
So, yeah, perfect introduction there. Um, so, could you please describe your career trajectory and kind of background? Because that's such an overarching responsibility to hold. How did that come about? Well, that's that's <laughs> how long have we got? Yeah. Um, okay, in terms of my, my path, mm-hmm. if you like, my, my career path, um, like many people, I imagine it was quite uh, intermittent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of characteristic of people in the arts yeah. where it's a long windy road mm-hmm. um, and takes quite a long time and obviously a lot of courage and uh, steps forward and backwards before one really is able to gain um, some kind of momentum on yeah. that path and it's true of me as much as anyone else mm. I wasn't a child star <laughs> um, and like uh, in fact an ex of mine used to say well it takes many many years to become an overnight success yeah, so um, it's a path of many years it started um, back in the 1980s mm-hmm. um, when I first trained to be a curator after leaving uh, university um, I studied at Cambridge University I studied history mm-hmm. or I, I took a degree in history I should say um, and uh, immediately after that, I trained to be a curator mm. in Birmingham and worked with people, strangely with whom I'm still working out, people yes. like Sonia Boyce, mm. um, Marlene Smith, uh, and such people, and, and several of those people, mm. Angela Kingston, for instance, who's a curator at Icon Gallery. At the time, are still people that I, I see now and work with now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a, a long path yeah. in that respect. Um, it was interrupted. Uh, at a time when I became, um, I guess, concerned that the work uh, that I was doing in relation to the visual arts, curating museums, was becoming a little bit too rarefied. Um, The London Art World was very different to the way it is now. Um, So I decided that I would take some time to get involved in politics. Mm. Um, And I got involved in all kinds of politics, uh, principally politics around racial equality, um, around Europe, actually. Mm. Um, And I ended up working uh, for an MP, uh, Mm. the late, now sadly late, Bernie Grant MP. I worked for him for a while. I ran a campaign group for for, uh, Bernie Grant MP. So lots of work in Mm. Parliament around politics and and such, quite serious work, organising press conferences and the like. Um, but also in relation to that, I was quite involved as an activist in other kinds of mm-hmm. politics, uh, particularly politics around HIV and AIDS, um, politics around queer politics, as well as, you know, as I say, um, one might, what one might call one more kind of street politics mm-hmm. in relation to uh, issues to do with race equality, um, anti-apartheid, you know, all of that kind of yeah. stuff that, you know, many people of my age were quite involved in those kinds of uh, concerns. Yeah, but really far-reaching interests and practice, and because uh, I noticed it as that's so interesting to hear. Because I noticed it's a thread through your curatorial projects and kind of research interests here at UAL that kind of using curation to spark conversation or debate or to ex- further expose different sides to a subject seems to interest you. And it's really interesting, therefore, to hear about that political experience because on paper those might be quite separate uh, experiences, but actually it sounds like you've made them interconnect. Absolutely, and I think that. It sometimes is more a question about how one, if you like, applies yeah. what the what the what I call the the, the space of application mm. of one's skills. That you know, we bring everything with us if mm. we um, if we have the ability um, and have a certain level of awareness and skill. I think to, we can bring everything with us: who we are, mm. our backgrounds, our family, you know, trajectories, our histories. Mm. All of those things come to bear on 
what we do now. Yeah. So, and I think particularly as artists or um, creatives, curators, people working in fashion, etc., we have in these fields because they're what I call integrated fields. What they're about is being able to take things from very disparate mm. spaces and different aspects of our lives and bring them together. And if one is able to, I know that people use this term, it's a technical term, synthesize. Mm. Um, we'll hear it a lot when you're studying, you know, at UAL, yeah. kind of like, do you, have you learned to synthesize? You know, how to <laughs> synthesize? And put simply, what that really means is taking things which are from very different areas of one life, one's life and bringing them together mm. for one experience mm -hmm. in one place. So what you get are these very disparate things which uh, a viewer or someone... Um, looking at a garment or an object or a design object or an art object, they can see all of that in one place yeah. and they might take time to work it out sure. where it's all come from, but it's all there for them to see and to experience. Yeah. That I think takes a long time to learn and one has to, I think, go very deeply within the different areas of one life mm. to bring those things to, to the fore. So um, I was pleased that I spent the time in politics, but that time too came to an end yeah. um, when I realised, uh, well, I had a lot of misgivings about mm. what was going on in, in political life. Um, and I think there are things which people are openly criticising now mm. about how, um, if you like, the mechanics of parliamentary democracy work. Mm. Um, I'm not non-democratic in yes. that sense. It's just more about understanding the limitations of the machine or the vehicles mm. that we have and understanding that the vehicles are not the same as the destination. Okay. So we're trying to get somewhere as a people, as a group of peoples. Mm. And sometimes we have to look at those vehicles, parliamentary democracy, the way parliament works. Sometimes there are big questions about that as the vehicle for democracy. Mm -hmm. And that was something I understood and learned. In fact, like, it wasn't for me. Yeah. So okay for some people, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. So that's why then I returned to the world of the visual arts. Yeah. Um, I undertook a PhD. I did a PhD at Goldsmiths. Uh, I worked uh, um, under the supervision of Iri Turokov, who's a very well-known uh, theorist, and uh, Professor Gavin Butts, who's also a well-known uh, theorist. Um, and I wrote a PhD called Reclaiming Remembrance, which was looking at art, shame, and commemoration. Mm. And I was looking at space of exhibition as a public space, or as a space where different people come together to mourn people who have died. So I was very interested in the space of the retrospective, looking at people who have passed away, mm. and how that gives the opportunity to uh, reflect on, think through, come to terms with some of the things that have happened in that person's life. Oh, that's fascinating, because yeah, from what you've described before, it's been about provoking discussion, whether that's allowing space Absolutely. Yeah. I think that is, if you like, the privilege mm. of the arts to be able to provide a space where people can, of very different uh, persuasions, yeah. can come together in one place and can both be connected or mm. alone. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can have a very brief conversation with somebody in a gallery space yeah. and never speak to that person again yeah. in your entire life. Exactly. And there's something about that, just the moment around an object where you're both looking at that object Absolutely. and you point towards it 
and just something comes out, something yeah. sometimes just comes from nowhere. Oh, I so agree. Just... That's one of my favourite things, a uh, way of marking a success of an exhibition is seeing those little interactions mm. between people. I've definitely been known to kind of ghost around exhibitions I've worked on and see. Stra- if, if you see strangers talking, then you know you've <laughs> Absolutely. got a bit prompt in Absolutely. Yeah. And I also love the kind of eavesdropping as well. Yes. You know, yeah. when two people are talking and someone yeah. just walks by and you just see them <laughs> pretend and they're not listening, but yeah. they're totally eavesdropping exactly. because what's being said is really interesting yeah. and important. The so. spontaneous tour guides yeah. bring in their own kind of specialisms or interpretations exactly. into that room. Exactly. Yeah, I love exactly. that. Which again brings us into public debate, but also into collaboration. So you're anticipating the collaboration of your of your viewer in a way so it's really really interesting I think a lot of the strands of what we've spoken about so far will actually lead through to talking about your object so perhaps next you could introduce the object you've kindly brought in to talk about today yes well because we're both curators um, I'm going to speak very specifically about the object that's in front of me Um, which is, in fact, a JPEG. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the object actually yeah. is. It's a series of JPEGs. And the JPEGs are taken from photographs, of photographs, <laughs> um, from um, an event that took place in the early 1990s, um, which was connected to a campaign um, for what was called the Queer Wedding. The campaign was led by a, a, an activist group called Outrage, um, in which many people were involved or associated, um, people like Peter Tatchell um, and the then sadly late Derek John and, and such people, many others as well obviously, were associated with this campaign group. Um, and I was quite heavily involved at one point, campaigning for many things in terms of equality and rights for lesbians and gay men, uh, bisexual, trans, etc. By etc. I don't mean yeah. <laughs> that the others don't matter, but sure, you know, it was a developing what we say a developing discourse. So mm. different people were placed within those allegiances at different sure. times. So that's what I mean by yeah. that. Just to cover yeah, the ground. Sure, <laughs> shifting definition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I've, there are three objects here, three JPEGs, mm. um, and uh, perhaps I'll describe yeah, describe yeah. them. Um, One downside with an audio uh, object description is you my guests have to describe what they brought in. So. Ah, right, excellent. Well, let me start yeah. with the primary one, and I'll number them one, two, three. The first one is a JPEG um, of a photographic image of a crowd. It's a crowd um, which is actually in Trafalgar Square um, because this campaign uh, was a very high-profile campaign. The press from uh, the UK, which was very important at the time because um, obviously there wasn't as much uh, online or digital media presence in, I know it's not that long ago, but there really wasn't yeah. as much. So the mainstream print media was very powerful at the time. Still is, but it was more powerful at the time. Um, and this uh, campaign was profiled very highly in the mainstream print media. So it took place in Trafalgar Square. Um, obviously, we had to get permissions to, to do things there. So again, it was a very high-profile campaign. Um, and the idea was that um, we would construct a, um, a giant wedding cake, um, which would be surrounded by fairies and um, kind of 
little angels and I mean we drew on all kinds of mythology, Greek mythology, Christian mythology, it was just queering it up really Um, and this I can't remember what the wedding cake was made of because I didn't make it because I was actually the fairy (laughs) I was inside the cake so I was like I'll jump out of the cake (laughs) (laughs) so anyway um, there was this idea that there would be this giant wedding cake and then I would jump out of it and the campaign was very strongly in favour of marriage rights for lesbians and gay men because at the time, um, it was unlawful. Um, at the time, actually, the, uh, the where the law stood was still the uh, Sexual Offences Amendment Act 1968 was still in force, in which um, the uh, relation, sexual relations between men were still prohibited, except between consenting adults over the age of 21. So it was very particular that um, if obviously if there was no consent, if you weren't over the age of 21, what one was doing was unlawful, criminal, and people did go to jail or were threatened with imprisonment. Um, And the recent uh, 50th anniversary of decriminalisation, 2018, I think there were a number of um, podcasts and broadcasts, pardons, and a lot of political activity around those who'd fallen foul of that particular piece of legislation. Um, So we were very serious about saying, we need to campaign to get this changed. And it's not just about um, saying that there should be an equal age of consent, although that was one thing that was um, campaigned around, um, because age of consent for uh, heterosexuals at the time was, I believe it was 16. under the new Labour government, first it was reduced to 18 and then subsequently to 16. It was just equalised. Mm-hmm. There were many things to campaign around at the time. Say, step by step. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so for this particular campaign, we were interested in, in the marriage rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, civil partnerships hadn't been invented. And so there was just no way that there could be any kind of conjugal rights between, uh, between consenting adults. So that's what we campaigned around. Uh, and I was, uh, I can't remember having an audition, I can't quite remember <laughs> how it worked out, but I ended up being cast as the, as the fairy, the, the wedding fairy. So I had this wonderful ensemble which was um, created for me by the now sadly uh, late Arthur Peters, who was a fashion designer, um, whom I met in the early 1990s again. Uh, and he was um, a, a, a versatile creator of, of materials and garments and um, he had he had shows he worked as well with um, people who were um, designing for opera and, and theater and such like he worked alongside uh, photographers and it was very much in those days um, I don't like to use the term community it's more small network it's a small network of people um, in around South London but not just South London across London in around London um, who knew each other, who mm. kind of turned up at nightclubs and um, danced with each other, I'm sure, I was going to say fuck, I'm not yeah. sure allowed to say that, uh, but <laughs> had sex with one another, and mm. you know, it's that yeah. kind of a world, you yeah. know, everybody was kind of interconnected, yeah. we did politics together, we slept together, we, you know, went to theatre together, you know, it's all one yeah. world, I'm not going to say one happy family, 
funny. No. <laughs> Not everyone's happy. Not no. all the time. He uh, very kindly agreed to uh, create this ensemble for me for this uh, for this event. Because um, it was a custom piece. For yeah, function. absolutely. Oh, he was wonderful. He yeah. was wonderful. So what we see in this first JPEG um, is uh, an image of me, um, of a, a young black man who's dressed a head to foot in a white lycra catsuit. I mean, mm -hmm. That's what we called it at the time. Yeah. Quite sure they still called <laughs> them catsuits. I think we said all in one. Yeah, like exactly. That. White lycra catsuit, um, head to foot. Um, and around the waist, around the catsuit, there's a, a pink tutu. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember what it was made of, to be honest. I don't think it was lace. I think it's something like that. I think it was polyester, actually, but I can't can't exactly yeah. remember the, the fabric. Um, and then I'm wearing these uh, silver DMs um, as well. I have in my hand uh, a wand, um, a fairy wand with stars on the end, which somebody made for me. Um, and because the, the theme was white and silver, just as in many wedding cakes, you know, you yeah. have that white and silver mix. So there's a lot <laughs> the of silver. And, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think at the time I had my ears pierced, so I think I have silver earrings. Um, I had this incredible watch, and again, I can't remember the manufacturer, mm. but the watch was silver with a mirrored dial. Um, so, on, you know, it wasn't actually a sunny day, but it was, in the, it was during the daytime, mm. so obviously it had to kind of a little bit of flash yeah. around the place. Not sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I also had these uh, sunglasses, which uh, had um, a uh, steel, uh, uh, steel arms and steel, steel rims, mm. just to, to finish off your look. So in the middle of this particular JPEG, you see me standing, and I'm surrounded uh, by a crowd of people in costume dress, um, dressed for dressed for the wedding. Um, and I think what this image does is just gives a sense of, if you like, the occasion yeah. that uh, was taking place. It was at a time where um, campaigning uh, was as much about kind of something celebratory mm. and party yeah. as it was about the anger. I think mm. in a way that the, the queer campaigners, what they wanted to do was to distinguish themselves from, I guess, different forms of campaigning mm. by having this very um, fiesta yeah. uh, aspect to it. Everybody was going to have a good time. Everybody was going to, you know, enjoy themselves, even if people got arrested, right. you know, we were going to have a good time. Yeah. It wasn't about anger and, and mm -hmm. destruction, not that I totally disagreed with violence yeah. at the time. I just thought that politics is a very sophisticated business mm. and one has to take different tactics sure. at different times for different things. That's interesting. So. It's public, it's performative and it's also creating the right atmosphere and therefore eventually the right press story. And that's, yeah. <laughs> that's what it was exactly yeah. Yeah, and brilliant. as I said you know there were so many professionals mm. involved so the people stage managing it all knew yeah. kind of how they were going to get this this image for the, yeah. for the newspapers and that was what that part of the campaign was about I really like that I um, interviewed a young designer called Charles Jeffrey recently and he said like joy as protest and I oh, thought that was really great. intriguing and it seems like you're following a similar yeah um, Manifesto. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, so the second image then is um, a another JPEG, um, and in this we actually see 
me again in the same outfit. Um, but I'm actually now on the, I think it's, it's below one of the monuments on Trafalgar Square. I can't remember which one it is. In the image, you just see the bottom part of the monument. Um, and then you see two figures above me who are dressed as uh, kind of angels or kind of fairy yeah. type figures. Cupids, um, that's it, thank you. Um, wearing laurels and uh, carrying kind of ancient instruments uh, with fairies' wings and kind of togas and, and things, all in, um, I, think it's, I think they were white cotton, I'm not quite sure, um, and with placards as well. Um, and behind them, you see a um, massive banner for the, for the group Outrage, and you just see the edge of out of outrage is visible and then uh, in front is uh, someone with a megaphone um, who's uh, obviously um, part of the campaign and then again you see another series of figures who are camped up um, wearing uh, feathers feather boas and pink shirts and so again the party atmosphere is is very much is very much there but also there's the imagery of more traditional scenes of protest and public demonstration there as well through the megaphone and the placard and things so it's an interesting mix exactly and actually just at the bottom left hand of the of the image you see um one of the um photographers from the from the press so again as you say you get this um mix of the traditional um protest image as well as the the, um, the joy mm. the joy of protest mm. and then in the final uh, object we have um, the third JPEG mm-hmm. um, which is an image of me and a um, colleague of mine I think his name is Patrick mm-hmm. that was his name. he's wearing a wig and a kind of a black vest and shorts I think he's wearing I think that's right um, and he has a gold bracelet and, and trainers. Um, and then you have me again in, in the said mm. outfit. And what's interesting about this particular image is you also get the image of the bank of photographers, the pack of photographers. Yeah. And I have to say, it was a very powerful experience mm-hmm. because effectively it was a photo call. Yeah. And um, they were all there from all of the major mm-hmm. newspapers with their photographs all vying with one another to get Mm. a photograph and shouting, calling over for, you know, to get their shot and and such like. And for it all, it all kind of almost like blew up. Mm. I had no idea it was was going to be at that scale. Yeah, had you anticipated that level of exposure? Yeah, not at all. Did what you were wearing help? Did it, was it a sense of costume? Did that create any kind of protection or barrier? Or were you just going along with it once you were there? I think it did help. Mm -hmm. I think costume helps create character um, and it helped with the performance um, because the whole thing was a performance. This isn't necessarily real life. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I think that helps with the, in a sense, the politics because, interestingly, um, I think I'd understood at quite a subtle level that politics is performance Mm. and that politicians that we see much of the time are performing all the time and so much of it is about how to maintain this performance how not to let the performance slip how not to let the mask slip how just to keep the whole performative machine 
That's Go interesting. Because that could impact, apply to individuals in terms of their public persona mm. reputation, but also there's so much criticism at the moment against the rituals of mm. the Houses of Parliament and whether that's certain hoops you have to hop through or whether that's just literally the, the architecture and the way that the space is navigated. And to turn that again mm. into a more form, you know, form of public ritual and joy and exchange mm. is a really nice way of, of messing with that mode, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah, making costume a positive in action is mm. really interesting to me. That is fantastic. Um, so that was a really interesting story to hear in a way of using those objects to kind of navigate that story and in particular to highlight that role of the clothing within it. Um, we've kind of covered it within, but just to kind of platform it even more, I'd be interested to hear, you knew straight away when we were talking about this interview that that was what you wanted to talk about, or at least that's how it came across to me. Like, Why did this stand out to you as your, your object, your subject for our conversation today? I was so struck by the ways in which the polarisation of certain forms of practice um, don't necessarily have to be so. I think today, for many reasons, it's suggested that, you know, you know, fashion, you should be over there and you should do fashion. Curators, you're over there, you should stick to curating. Mm. Um, jewelry designers, you're over there, you should do jewelry. Yeah. And leave uh, politics to the politicians, leave the law to the lawyers, leave the... Da, 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 yeah. da. But I think that kind of um, technocracy, if I can use that technical mm -hmm. term, which just generally means rule or governing by the experts, that kind of technocracy can be useful, but it has its limits. Yeah. One of the limits is that it doesn't allow for this accidental or incidental connection between things to which we'll we were referring earlier in the exhibition space where yeah. there's these accidental or incidental connections between people from very disparate walks of life. Yeah. And I think that that accident needs to be part of political life. Mm -hmm. So within the work that we were doing at that time, I'm going to say it may not be true, but mm -hmm. I think queer politics was at a certain stage of its development. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as um, professionalised perhaps or... Um, governed by expertise in the way it is now. But at the time, you know, people coming from very different walks of life. Some people were, did work in the press, some mm. people did work in politics, but some people were fashion designers, yeah. some people worked in the opera, some people worked in film, you know, mm. people just worked in different computer designers, you know, people worked in different uh, walks of life and they all brought their expertise yeah. to the party. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because of that that it meant that... Um, those kinds of expertise, which one might think are perhaps sidelined within politics now, really could come to the fore. Mm. So like the fashion designers were, were central. Had Arthur decided, no, I don't want to have anything to do with it, mm. this would have been a very different kind of event. Yeah. The fact that he said, well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll put something together for you, mm. an ensemble, we'll do this, and we could try this, we could try that, and being in his studio yeah. and trying things on, thinking, wow, this is actually part of yeah. something's going to happen this yeah. weekend, and the press are going to be involved. And da -da -da. So he was creating something yeah. with that kind of political impact mm -hmm. in mind, but not in the way that now one might think the hairdressers who do the hair of the Prime Minister, I think, you know, she's got to look like yeah. this today or that. It's not as, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, mm -hmm. but it's not as focused as that. Mm -hmm. because or maybe it's fixed. It's fixed, yeah. thank you. Yeah. That's the word, yeah. fixed. It's not as fixed as that because we didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody might we're, have turned yeah, up. Yeah, we're, we're talking in hindsight, whereas, yeah. yeah, in that moment, 
and that could have just been an exchange between this community that isn't described and this set of people bringing their stuff to the table and exactly. it might have just been you know you looking back at each other in a way yeah kind of, absolutely yeah. might have been totally deserted in fact but it might have been raining <laughs> nobody around at yeah. all you know yeah. it could have been a thunderstorm and people just run for the hills and we were just there in our wet lycra you know <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. It just happened to have turned out the way it did. Yeah. So I think it's a well, very different... Well, happened as a result of all your hard work, by yes. the sounds. But yeah, yeah, I totally see what you mean. It's really interesting because this, this is a document in part of a personal experience of a set of people, um, as we just said, bringing what they can to the party. But it's also a public declaration of a big moment, a point in history of something starting to change. Absolutely, absolutely. Progress, which is yeah. really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of brings me on to something else I want to talk about you're my first guest who's really explicitly said in advance that they want to talk about something which is politically, socially important, but also is really personally emotive, um, and that really came across in our prior conversations. And do you find that informs your own practice? Are you constantly balancing kind of biography, feeling, with social significance, history? What will this mean to someone in 10 years' time? You mentioned there about the developing nature of your subject as well. That must be, you know, are you conscious of being a part of that development? Absolutely. I think that it's very much about trying to, I, I call this, I don't want it to sound too overblown, but I, I call it kind of like the nest of audiences. So in a way, for me, political life has to start with me, with the things which are important to me, because I am my first audience. And so if there's something that's significant enough for me, then I can say it, I talk to myself quite a lot, but I can <laughs> say it to myself, I can look up myself in the eye, that's the phrase, and yeah. still myself in the eye, look in the mirror mm. and say, yeah, this is important, yeah. okay, I've got past the first audience. Mm. Then I'll try things out with my friends, with my colleagues, and on it goes, mm. and I think that's what politics is. Mm -hmm. You keep trying things out with more and more and more and more and more people. Mm -hmm. Eventually you will meet your adversaries who are set against you, but that's also politics, mm. and I think perhaps what we're seeing today is a kind of failure of that kind of politics in the way in which people don't really want to encounter their adversaries. Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you what I mean by that quite particularly, because I'm currently reading, we were talking earlier about this, this book, The Politics of Friendship by, by Jack Derrida, and one of the things he, he talks about in terms of the notion of the adversary is... The term adversary has the word verse in it, it has mm -hmm. this term verse, which means that things can be reversed, that things can change. Yeah. So with your adversary, it's somebody who has a position against you, but can move, mm -hmm. can be moved. Mm -hmm. And their movement is dependent on the fact that we are prepared to move as well, mm -hmm. and we recognise the whole situation as dynamic mm -hmm. and unpredictable. We don't know what the future holds, we're yeah. trying to create the future together yeah no point if it's a static it takes both both to make a step exactly yeah. it's a very different mm. idea yeah. of people who are fixed and opposed mm. fixed opponents who stand different sides of the room throwing things at each other it's not what we understood as politics yeah, yeah. because that closes people out yeah. That means people are forced to take certain positions and they get stuck. Yeah. Because even if they think, oh God, actually, I don't quite agree with that anymore, yeah. I see your point of view, they can't say it no. because they're stuck in a position. Yeah, it becomes a battle. I heard yeah. someone describe that as that we're currently living through a West Wing ideal of politics where it's one opinion yelling at another and yeah. you can't have discussion. And as you say, movement and kind of compromise, but 
also understanding that there'll be a level of exchange. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the idea of reverse. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's really um, nice. But we have to be prepared to reverse mm. as well. So yeah. that's everybody's got to be prepared to keep yeah. keep turning. And that's what's going to make, that's what will make things happen. So for that, I felt it was, it was important to understand that as part of the, yeah. the public space that we were trying to, that we were trying to create. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I've shamelessly pulled apart from your, um, so we had a prior email exchange before this interview when you described what you spoke about today, there was a part, passage that I just adored. So you said, these events underline the possibility for change. Fashion can play a part in such political transformation, not just as a sideline or a decoration, but as something that works visual wonders at the heart of social struggle. Excessively and sometimes outrageously, fashion shows that we can imagine leading different lives. I probably should have let you read that yourself, so apologies. <laughs> I just re I thought that I, I want that written on a business card, and then any time someone tries to undermine my subject, I can be like, here you go. <laughs> but I thought that was such a brilliant framing of um, a lot of strands of what you've already discussed, but also that idea of fashion's role as a document documenter of a, of a social era or experience but also as a motivator and a part of process and progress um, and the fact that a lot of the time when we talk about fashion history it's well women's roles were changing and clothes moved to reflect that but there's also an element of well I want my role to change I want my experience and that can be really individualized and I love the idea that you were thinking of your clothes as a projection space for what might be about to happen. Absolutely. And that's the thing about the imagination, mm. the ways in which the imagination is part of the political. Yeah. In fact, there is no political without the imagination. Yeah. And all those who participate in the imaginary, this space where the imagination takes shape, mm. takes form, in whatever form that might be, whether it be painting, a photograph, mm. a garment, you're part of being able to say things can be different to the way they are now. Mm. If you invent a, a different kind of scene, a scene that somebody's never seen before, if you introduce colours that people have never seen before, mm. you work with textiles that people have never seen before, it's something that's coming from something that isn't here at the moment. Yeah. So it's another world, it's a future world mm -hmm. that we make now. And for me, these different forms, whether they be fashion or um, sculpture or uh, music, they are almost like doorways into this other world. Yeah. And it's saying that those other worlds are possible. Mm -hmm. That's the political. Yeah, fantastic. I could talk to you for hours, but I think we'll have to start drawing it to a close. So I'm going to leap slightly into a couple of personal questions to bring us to a close, although you've been very brilliantly candid and personal within the interview so far, so not all as relevant as it sometimes is in my other interviews. Um, so we've spoken about that kind of sense of agency for opportunity that objects can hold in terms of the different stories they might tell um, and relationships they might hold to a society. Um, I'm always curious when I'm interviewing people about whether they actually collect anything personally and whether that feeds through, you know, analysing this and using this as a motivation point every day professionally What's it like at home? Is it a blank space or are we piling up your, your secret holds of interest? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. It's a really great question. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, because in a way I have a professional interest in mm. the term collect. Yeah. It's quite it's quite a tricky question. Mm. Um, I have kind of, I would say I'm quite half-hearted in my collections, okay. um, which means, yeah, I have some enthusiasm, um, but 
I sometimes don't have enough courage to really push past the obstacles. So um, my collections are all kind of unfinished. I know all collections are unfinished, but my collections really are unfinished. Yeah. I do have a collection of coffee spoons. Ah, curious. I'm not quite sure how they how they started. Um, I was interested in tea actually, mm. um, and um, I just discovered some teaspoons in, in in a shop, and I was quite interested in collecting teaspoons, particularly around this question about you know the role of tea in empire. Yeah. Like particularly the British Empire, um, and I do remember um, one of the things that uh, my mum uh, gave to me was was the first tea set that she had when she first came to England. So I kind of bought these very special uh, spoons mm-hmm. to go with the tea set. And then I was looking, and I thought, um, oh, there's another set of spoons. So I'll get those. Mm-hmm. And actually, because I was such a novice at it, they actually turned out not to be teaspoons. They're actually coffee spoons. Okay. Um, so accidental tangent. Exactly. But then I just kept seeing, you know what it's like, I yeah. kept seeing these coffee spoons, so I just kept buying them, and then I wouldn't be stopping right, silly. Yes, I was on eBay, I was like, doing the research with all these yeah. manufacturers in Sheffield and all these yeah. different places where they made them, and da, 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 da. so in a way, I did become a kind yeah. of collector in, in those terms mm. of, of coffee spoons. But I kind of ran out of steam and ran out of money in a way, because you know what these things are like, they just become more and more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I want those ones. Yeah. <laughs> the more you know, the more you need. Exactly. Exactly. Rather than it being a charming exactly. So I was really on the threshold of spending like 300 and something pounds on a set of coffee spoons, which I was never going to use. And I kind of thought, hang on a minute. And you know the thing that actually really put the brakes on it was actually the money for the spoons. It was when I started to think about display. This is where the curatorial yeah. thing came in, where I started to think, right, well, how am I going to display these? Mm. And I certainly started to realise that actually the display cabinet was really going to be the expense, yeah. that I'd need to have something specially designed, da, 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 yeah, all the rest of it. Exactly. And then once you've built it, because you obviously have to build it with spare, room to spare. So then you're really stuck because then you have to fill it. Yeah. Once it's filled, you have to get another one. So really <laughs> just in this whole world yeah. of the collector. So yeah, that's curious because to be honest, I thought you were going to say the opposite and be like, well, once you've got a case, you can only have a certain number of spoons because you have a space for them. But no, yeah. <laughs> on to the next case. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Lesson has not been learned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not in a position to talk at all. I'm totally <laughs> But that's great. That's definitely a curator's attitude. <laughs> No Marie Kondo's here, thank you very much. <laughs> and then perhaps as a final question, um, so we've gone on a, a separate area of interest there to draw us back to clothes. Do you think that your professional practice um, and those interests and ideas that we've discussed today affect and influence the way that you dress and think about clothes yourself? Such a difficult question to answer. I mean, partly because I have an interest in clothes which comes from lots of different directions. Mm-hmm. Part comes from my own history. I was born in Northampton, which as many people know is the home of shoe manufacturing in, in the UK. And still, although a lot has changed, um, it still has some incredible uh, manufacturers there, like Chickas International, etc. Yeah. and makes wonderful shoes. And um, I'm wearing my brogues today. Um, and I have, actually, I wouldn't call it a collection because that's too grand a term, but I do have a lots of nice shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're in active use as well. Sometimes I think that's the distinction with a collection, particularly as a curator. I mean, if I say to you, you know, I'm in something I'm not wearing, 
Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's why I don't call yeah, it a collection. Exactly. The coffee spoons are kind of kept in their cases and the shoes are warm. Mm-hmm. The shoes are warm, the shoes are repaired, yeah. the shoes are polished, the shoes yeah. are they're very well looked after. They have, you know, shoe you know, I've got the shoe horn, yeah. I've got the shoe tree, I mean yeah. it's all they're well looked after but they are used. Yeah. So it, that's different. But yeah, I like that line, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really important I think. And also I don't buy more than I wear. Mm, okay. You know. But it sounds like you put a lot of thought into the care and kind of prolonging the life issues. So perhaps that's an influence of your curatorial work and kind of appreciation of collections. Absolutely, and the appreciation of objects yeah. in the sense of you know really looking at the the beauty of this object mm. and also thinking about well okay when I think about a, a shoe and understanding you know it's made of all these different elements. So when I actually buy a shoe, I want it to be able to be disassembled and put back again. Mm. So I want to be able to have the I look and think. Could that heel be repaired? Yeah. Can the sole be replaced? Da, 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 you know, all these things. Oh, that's so fantastic. Think um, about the components and the yeah. effect. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't like glued no. you know, shoes. I just kind of just yeah. think, mm, yeah. no, that could have been stitched, mm. which means you can unstitch it and redo. Yeah. So I think it does, but somehow must have yeah, come definitely. into it. But I really like the fact that that's about, as I said, prolonging life or kind of creating new life in a way so it's mm. not a one-time wear entity because some people might you know for instance I wear a lot of vintage clothing and I love the idea that I'm wearing something that's already lasted for x amount of time and been worn by x amount of people but with that it's more for me it's more about that past story and maintaining and caring mm. for that item whereas with yours I love the idea that it's a base product and appreciation but you're fine with replacing the heel or you know mm. it won't be the original forever the components will shift as you go exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting <laughs> and you don't really know it's weird because there's a f- philosophical trick yeah. around it isn't there because by the time you know you think well what is that shoe yeah because all these different bits have been changed yeah. 10 and years worth of craftsmanship yeah exactly exactly so uh i think in those terms yes um and then the other thing is just in terms of really um appreciating uh, fabrics and garments and my mum was always blessed that she's no longer with us, but mm. um, she was always kind of whenever I used to come back from the shops, you know, you know when you're old enough to get home, you get to spend your own money yeah. on clothes. She'd always be, what's that made of? Yeah. You know, she'd be looking at the label, what's the percentage? Oh God, is that 100% cotton? Oh God, there's got this in it, that in it. Mm. I thought it doesn't matter, I like it. <laughs> yeah. but now, obviously, I'm like, oh God, how's that going to work? And yeah. Da, 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 how's... But a lot of it's about maintenance. Yeah. You know, what's it going to be like after it's been washed a few times? Yeah. You know, is it going to lose its shape? Mm. And you know, just take it to dry cleaners. Is dry cleaner going to be able to look after it? Yeah. So it's all of those kinds of things come into kind of thinking about the, the things that are the things yeah. that I wear. It's brilliant. Higher level of thought and higher level of experience, I'd say. <laughs> so, perfect. So you've given me so much to think about today. So thank you very, very much. And um, it was a joy to be joined by you. And thank you all very much for listening. <laughs>